Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. If you're visiting today, we're glad to have you here, and we hope you feel at home and connected. We do have a new members class after this, not after this service, after the 11 o'clock service. If you want to find out more about the church, though, it's on the second half of that class, you can still jump in and kind of find out more about what we are about and really how to plug in because the church is not about Sunday morning. We invest a lot of time into one hour on Sunday morning and that's important to have a common experience. To sing together, to be in unison together, to share communion together, to get into the word together and yet the church is not about simply what we do on Sunday morning, the church is you. And if we're not connecting as the church, then we're not really being the church. We're just attending the church. And at Bergen Park Church, we want to move church out of Sunday morning and into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday because, see, that's when church gets real. When we share life together, we love one another, we get in the word together, we go out in this community, we find there are needs in this community, and like Doug shared this morning, we step in and we serve. That's what it looks like for us to be the church, to be with Jesus, to become like him, and then finally to do the stuff that Jesus did. And so right now we're in the, a series in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to grab a Bible, we're in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is kind of close to the middle. If you go to the Psalms, Proverbs, take left. And you'll find Nehemiah someplace in there. I think in the Bibles in front of you, it's about page 400. And here's where I want to start. And this is a question somebody posed to me. And I did not have an answer. And so if you do not have an answer, you're okay. What do you want? What do you want? And you can qualify that. What do you want in life? What do you want in your relationships? What what do you want out of your finances? What do you want? If someone was to walk up to you and say, If you're going to become the man or woman God wants you to become, if you're going to live with holy ambition, what do you need and what do you want? Have you spent much time thinking about your desires? Often we think we got to clean up our desires. I don't know if you're like me. Before I bring my desires into God's presence, I got to clean them up, right? No, because I don't want to embarrass myself in God's presence as if he doesn't know what I want. Do you know what you want? And then listen, are you honest in God's presence? Do you just go to him and say, God, this is where I am and this is what I want and this is what I want you to do. Do you come with that kind of boldness and honesty or do you clean it up and you kind of tell him what you think he wants you to say? You know, Nehemiah, for him to get where he is, he had to work through what he wanted and what God wanted and then he had to wrestle with God for about 100 days to get to the place where God showed him a vision of a preferred life, his life, that's directed by the Spirit of God and the will of God. Do you know what you want? And maybe that's a question you need to write down and this week just start asking God, God, what do I need? What do I want? And then what you've got to start doing is taking where you are and what I want and, and where's what God wants for you and then how can you start bringing those two together? So let's jump into it. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to pick it up, I think, in verse 9. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9. You guys ready? You with me? 
I hope so. We're about to leave. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. Let's do it. Verse 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And then I rose at night and a few men with me, and I told no one. I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one that I rode. And I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went by night by the valley and inspected the walls, and I turned back and encircled the valley gate, so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Because, see, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, Do you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the work. But when Sanballat, the Horite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Gershom the Arab heard of this, they jeered. They jeered at us. They despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing Are you in rebellion against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants. We will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, as we we gather in here, you tell us you're the good shepherd. We shall not be in want. And yet, Father, we are overwhelmed with want, physical want, spiritual want, relational want, financial. Sometimes, Father, we walk in here and we are in frustration want. We don't even know what we want. And, Father, unless we, we know what we want, we can't bring that to you so that you can help us to lie down or you can lean us to greener pastures. You can show us a preferred vision what you want for our lives. So in Jesus' name, Father, we quiet our souls. Through the power of the Spirit, we listen for your voice. And we acknowledge we are your children. We are your servants. And Father, we want to do your will, but lead us to that place of desire that grows greater for you. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I learned about a condition this week that is called learned helplessness. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but learned helplessness happens when people go through traumas, often through poverty, and they do not think they can change their circumstances. There's a movie that I watched on Netflix called Hillbilly Elegy. Have you seen it? No? 
A few of you have. Thank you for the help. It's a fascinating movie. It's, I guess it's an even better book, but I didn't read the book. I just watched the movie, and that's okay. And then it talks about generational poverty, mainly generational poverty, white generational poverty in the South. And psychologists talk about learned helplessness. It's this condition that when you've lived in a situation long enough, you think you can't change it. And so my parents didn't graduate high school. There's no reason for me to graduate high school. And sometimes when you tell your parents I'm going to graduate high school, they say, what, do you think you're better than us? Learned helplessness. I look at my situation and I do not think I can change it. Now that's a condition in families, but I wonder if some of us may walk in spiritual learned helplessness. Not the condition of poverty, but the spiritual condition where you look at your life, you look at your relationships, you look at the world around you, and you say, I can't do anything to change it. You've seen the condition of the walls, like Nehemiah is looking at Jerusalem, the walls are torn down, the city's torn down, everything's a mess, people are accusing him. Listen, Nehemiah, you're a joke. God can't use you. Nothing's gonna change. Have you been in that kind of place where people have accused you, mocked you, and then you've told yourself, I can't change this? Spiritual, learned helplessness. You look at the sin, the brokenness in the world, and in your life, you say, no, I can't change it. What am I gonna do about this situation? Well, my hope is today, as we look at the story of Nehemiah, we're gonna move from spiritual, learned helplessness to holy initiative. And see, holy initiative is action. It's doing something that God puts a burden on your heart and it sits there for a while and then God starts to give you a different vision for life and you move out on that vision with obedience and confidence in what God could do. Holy initiative. I'm praying today that God will move us simply from looking at our life and complaining, hey, would somebody clean up the mess, to God, what can we do together? to change the circumstances in my life and in the lives of others. Now, before we jump back into the passage, a little context on Nehemiah. Because I know this is not a story that many of us know a lot about. Maybe you've grown up in church, you know it. But some of you may be thinking, why are we talking about Nehemiah? Who's this? I thought we talked about Jesus. In church about Jesus, well, Nehemiah loved Jesus. He just didn't know his name. That was kind of funny, wasn't it? And Nehemiah is in exile. It's kind of like, imagine the Canadians came out and took us all to the great white north, right? And they wiped out Washington, D.C., and Dallas, and New York, and L.A., and we were kind of all taken off to the great white north. That's the picture of what Nehemiah and his family have experienced. The Babylonians came in, wiped out Judah, took out Jerusalem, Washington, D.C., took out the Pentagon, dropped it to the ground, took out the White House, all of it's destroyed. All of those generations for about 100 years were taken off into captivity. And Nehemiah all he has known is captivity and enslavement, learned helplessness. He's looked out. Now the Persians have taken over. The Babylonians are gone. So another bigger bully has come along. He's under oppression, but God's raised him up to be the cupbearer of the king. He's sitting next to the most powerful man, and he could have said, Listen, I'm looking back at Jerusalem. It's 800 miles away. I'm up in the great white north. It doesn't matter what's going on there. I know it's a mess. I know something needs to be done, but it's not my problem. I can't do anything about it. But see, the problem was God had put holy ambition in him. He saw the problem and he couldn't let it go. 
And for 100 days, instead of blaming others, instead of saying somebody else should do something right, the church should get it together and organize things and go solve this problem. Instead of doing that, he, he prayed. He allowed the brokenness and sin of the world to really sit on his heart, and he started calling out to God, God, what do you want me to do? And realize how hard this would have been. Everybody in his generation was saying, the promises of God are over. Nehemiah, get with it. I mean, think about it. We're in captivity. Who would have thought that these Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians would have come along and taken us off into captivity? The promises of God are dead. Stop bothering us and start worshiping the gods of the nations. Nehemiah wouldn't do it. And instead, in this time of complacency and mediocrity, he trusted the promises of God. He allowed God to work in his heart and it moved from vision to initiative. That's the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not okay with the way things are. And so the king looks at Nehemiah and in chapter two, verse four, if you go back and look, that the king sees that something's wrong in his heart and he says, Nehemiah, what do you need? What do you want? What can I do for you? You know, Jesus asked a lot of questions in the gospels. You know the number one repeated question that he asked? What can I do for you? Blind man comes up, should be obvious, Jesus. But he looks at him and he's trying to get into that heart, that desire, that need. Hey, what can I do for you? If Jesus was to walk in and say, what can I do for you? Would you have an answer? Nehemiah has an answer. And it's not because he's spiritually greater than us. It's that he was willing to sit in the brokenness, the sin of his life, the sin of the world, and allow God to work in his heart and show him a different vision and show him his inadequacies and kind of show him what he needs. Nehemiah was willing to sit in it long enough that he was willing to wrestle with God and God was, showed him a different vision. If God was to ask, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? Second Chronicles 16.9 says this. Second Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you believe that? If we are fully committed to him. Now, I'm not quite sure what that looks like. I mean, we have to kind of wrestle. But if we are fully committed to him, God is looking to strengthen those who surrender to his will, who say, God, listen, I see the problems. I wanna surrender to what you want to do. God loves to use us. Have you read the Bible? Why would he use those people? You notice they're goofs. Even Nehemiah, we read the story of Nehemiah, he's starting off strong, right? It's like he's up 50 to one right now. But things, second half, it's gonna change. You don't understand, Nehemiah's gonna fail. It's gonna be 50 to, uh, 51 to 51 and pretty soon because he's human and God loves to do in us what he wants to do through us. He loves to use ordinary people and for his power to show up in ways that demonstrate our love for God and our love for others, God loves to use average, ordinary people. That's Nehemiah. He's not the hero of the story. 
He's just a man who is willing to wrestle with God and say, if you're my shepherd, lead me into a place where I shall not be in want. Lead me to quiet waters. Lead me to still waters. Restore my soul. I'm gonna hold on to you, God, and I'm not gonna just chase after the things of the world. I'm chasing after you, and I'm laying myself down. Nehemiah was willing to chase after God. Philip Yancey said it this way, and I love this. Jesus often reluctantly is reluctant to perform miracles, and considered it progress when he departed earth and entrusted the mission to his flawed disciples. He thought that was progress to let us run the church. Like a proud parent, God seemed to take more delight as a spectator of his bumbling achievements, our bumbling achievements of his stripling children than to display any self-display of omnipotence. God delights in flexing his muscles through us as we love him and as he receives the glory. So how do we live with holy initiative? In verses 11 through 18, we kind of see this maturity of Nehemiah and what comes out of him after praying for about 100 days. And so let's jump back into it. What does holy initiative look like? And there's three things that Nehemiah has that I wanna have. And I would say at times, sometimes I've experienced this, at other times, I've been completely confused. The first thing he has is a clarity of vision. He has a clarity of vision. He knows what he wants. But second, he has a clarity of the needs. He's willing to sit there long enough to investigate the needs around him, the needs in his own life, so that he becomes the change he wants to see in the world. And see, because he had a clarity of vision, he knew who God was, he knew who he was, and he knew what God wanted him to do. And because he could see the problems clearly, he had courage and he had conviction. And I think that's a place all of us want to walk in, but are we willing to do the work necessary to get there? Courage and conviction, it doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come overnight. You may get a little bit of false courage and conviction, but it's in wrestling with God, exposing your heart to God, finding that God is enough that he shows up in your life. So let's jump back into the passage. If you have your Bible, we're gonna go back in verse 11 and see this clarity of vision. Watch this, verse 11. And I went to Jerusalem. So he's just traveled about two months. Probably really helpful to travel two months and just be sitting on an animal to think. So for two months he's traveling. He's now in Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Verse 12, and then I arose at night, and I had a few men with me, and I noticed I told no one. God has put a vision in his heart. He's not going to allow that vision to come out until it's mature and until the people around him can handle it to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I'm not sure why he said that, but it's there. Verse 16, jump down verse 16. Notice the same kind of storyline. And the officials did not know where I'd gone. So he takes off, he's investigating Jerusalem. The walls are down, the temple's destroyed. They didn't know what I was doing. It's like, where's Nehemiah? It's breakfast, where is that guy? I had not told any of the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the guys, notice who are gonna do all this work. Nehemiah, why are we here? I can't tell you. See, God put a vision into his heart, but he wasn't willing to share that vision until the time was right. As a young pastor, I used to tell everyone right out the gate what God was telling me. Like God inspired something in me, right? 
And as a young pastor, I had all these visions and dreams. You know, I'm gonna accomplish all this. The world's gonna be changed. I'm gonna preach the gospel. Thousands are gonna come to faith. Yeah, that's not quite how it worked out, but God put passion in my heart and I had these visions and I would share them with people and you know what they'd say? Probably not gonna work out, Jason. Okay. You know, I tried that before. Yeah, it didn't work. Have you ever had a vision and you shared it too soon? And the problem wasn't the vision, it was the execution. Now understand, what we, when we read the story of Nehemiah, this is a description of what Nehemiah did. God's not telling us if you copy these things, you're gonna be successful. But we can learn things from Nehemiah's life and the way he does things. And one of the things he does is he guards the vision. Because see, if God shows you something, first of all, I hope you have a journal. You can use your phone too, you know, notes. You can kind of push that little audio thing and you can speak into it. If God says something to you, if he shares something, he gives you an impression, an idea, whether through a song or scripture or a message or a person, you need to write it down. Nehemiah wrote it down and he was willing to sit in it. And he did not share it until the time had come. You know who else did that? Jesus. Jesus had a mission for his life. Now he would say, I'd come to seek and to save the lost, right? But when it came to how it was going to happen, the cross, the resurrection, he held that back. Now, he may share it with his disciples, but often he shared it with the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Because, see, Jesus had the wisdom, if God's going to give me something, I'm not going to just cast it out because it's precious. And so I'm going to sit in it. I'm going to ruminate on it. So when you ask that question, God, what do you want from me? Or what do I want from you? You've got to sit in it for a period of time. And if God starts speaking, get excited about that. Maybe you share it with a few people who are, who are really close to you or who are going to guard that for you. But you don't just share it with anyone. Instead, Proverbs 4.23 says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We have to guard what God gives us. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting here thinking, okay, I don't have that kind of grand vision. I can't answer the question, God, what do you want or what do I want and what do I want God to do? That's okay. It's okay. Because see, before we understand really what God wants to do for us we, and through us, we need to understand what he's asking of us. And there are two types. When it comes to the will of God, there's kind of two tiers the first tier is the revealed will of God. The second tier is kind of the personal stuff. And that's where we dwell, right? God, who do I marry? Should I change jobs? Should I move? Should I buy this house? Where should I send my kids to school? That's the personal will of God. But here's what you'll find, I, I tend to find. If I want to discover what God wants to do in my life personally, I need to submit to him personally. That God often won't reveal his personal will until I'm willing to surrender to his revealed will. So here's the will of God for your life. Ready for this thing I'll tell you? Let it all out. You may want to write this down. You have a journal. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And you're going to find this throughout Scripture. It's going to say the will of God is. This is one of those places. Ready? It's not that exciting. The will of God is your sanctification. Sanctification is he wants to mold you into the likeness of Jesus. He wants your heart 
He wants your passions. He wants your devotion. He wants to change your life. God's will for you is he wants you. And he wants all your brokenness and your needs. And then through his power, through his community, he wants to change you to become more and more like Jesus. So here's what that practically looks like. If you're trying to answer a big question in your life, and you're bringing it to God and God's not answering, then maybe you need to just get into scripture and say, okay, God, where do I need to surrender to you? Listen, are there people right now that you are embittered towards? People you will not forgive. God, I wanna know where you wanna take me, but I'm not gonna forgive anybody. Jason, good luck with that. I don't work that way. Hey, God, I wanna know who you want me to marry. I'm not gonna stop looking at pornography. I need you to surrender to me. Hey, Jason, just bring your desires to me. Tell me about what you want and what you need and where you're struggling and open your heart to me and then surrender to me. That doesn't mean perfection because often you're here in perfection. Okay, once I stop doing all the bad stuff, then God will, no, 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 no. It's commitment. I love baseball. They fail a lot. Now, usually not in the field, but certainly when they're batting, 30% of the, 70% of the time they fail. But you wouldn't say they're not committed. And in the Christian life, it's about commitment. It's honesty about where we are. It's honesty about where we wanna go and it's honesty in the process. That's what God's looking for. And when we have clarity of vision, it's because we're honestly walking with God in life. We're surrendering to his revealed will. And then over time, listen, over time, he'll start showing you what he wants you to do. And he'll start opening the doors. We've got to trust that God will guide. So one, he has clarity of vision. Second, he has clarity of needs. His clarity of needs. Watch this, verse, verse 13. He says, and I went out by, by night to the valley gate. So what he's doing is he's surveying the city of Jerusalem. He's riding around it. I'm not sure which direction. I don't know where the valley gate is. Don't ask me. To the dung, uh, dung spring. These are interesting names. Dragon spring, no idea. It's fascinating. To the dung gate, and I expected the walls that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool. So he's traveling around and there was no room. It was a mess. Couldn't get my animal through. Verse 15, and I went up by night to the valley, expected the walls and I turned back. So he's kind of telling us where he's traveling. And then again, verse 16, I told no one of what I was doing or the plans that I have. He inspects the problem. How often we spend time in God's presence looking at the things we want to see changed. Have you spent time describing the problem to God? That word inspect, it's a medical term, and it means to heal the wound. It's the kind of inspection that is not just for the purpose of information, it's for the purpose of transformation. As I'm looking at this problem, what has to change? Where are the difficulties? To get clarity of vision, we have to have clarity of what the need is, and we have to be willing, listen, to define where I am. One of the hardest things to do in relationships, which is the most helpful, is say, hey, where are we? Have you ever asked that? You will not get to where you want to be unless you know the truth of where you are. And you will not get to where you want to be unless you press into the ugly truth of where you are and you're willing to look at it and say, this is my brokenness. And not blame and not shift 
and not argue and just look at it in God's presence and say, God, I want better than this, but this is what I got. And then you bring it to him. Have you spent that kind of time with God to say, hey, this is my need and this is where I am. Clarity of vision. He presses into clarity of need. And then finally, because he spent that time with God, look what happens, verse 17. This is 100 days after God put a burden on his heart. He starts to speak the truth of what God has showed him. He has courage and conviction. Watch this. And he said to them, so this is the city of Jerusalem. Hey, guys, we're in trouble. I don't know if you noticed. This is a mess. This is a disaster. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with his gates burned. Now, notice the language. Instead of just saying, hey, I want you to do this, he's saying, we're going to do this together. In leadership, this is, hey, this is where we are, but this is the preferred future. This is where we want to be. And he's casting, he's taking them with him. Look at the gates. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, but we may no longer suffer derision. And then notice verse 18, what does he do? He shares the vision, then he shares kind of what Doug did. He shares a testimony. Because I'm walking with God, I got a story of God walking with me. And in verse 18, he says, and I told him about the hand of God that had been on me and also the words of the king. Because remember, he had to go to the king and say, king, I want 12 years off. I want all the timber. I want all the resources. Send some army guys with me and build a house for me so I can go build another nation. And the king gave it to him. That's a testimony and for those people who are listening, because see, when people walk in brokenness and mediocrity, that's all they see. As human beings, as sinful human beings, we, we love mediocrity. I don't know if you realize this, we do. Because we convince ourselves it can't change. And the worst thing you can do is take a vision to a group of people who are not willing to see the vision that God has for you. Because see, all they can see is their problems. And if you've been there long enough, right? Have you been in that? Have you been in problem focus and you've sat in it long enough? There's no way this is gonna change. There's no way it's, no, who can help me? And Nehemiah doesn't just bring it to him. Instead, he casts a vision and say, guys, listen, I know you're gonna doubt this, but we can do it together. And he shares a testimony. And finally, it says in verse 18, let us rise up. The people say, hey, we're gonna do this. And they strengthen their hands. Convert, courage and conviction because here's the reality as we close. When you have clarity of vision and clarity of need and courage and conviction, you know what's coming next. Opposition. Opposition. And we see that in verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem heard of it, you're gonna trust God? Because you're trusting God Messes with me trusting myself. Do you know that? When you live by faith, it bothers the people around you who are walking by sight. Because your faith is, is confronting their faithlessness. And the greatest opposition is not going to come from outside the church. We're going to discover the greatest opposition is going to come from inside the church. This guy, Tobiah, He's a Hebrew. He's in the lineage of King David. If anybody should want change, it's Tobiah. But he is stuck in his mediocrity. And when a man and a woman of faith come along, he says, you can't do that. God's not big enough. And often the greatest challenges come 
from within the community of faith. So church, what do we need? What do we need? What do we need? We need somebody greater than Nehemiah. We need somebody greater than Nehemiah who didn't simply leave Persia, the right hand of the king. We need somebody greater than Nehemiah who left the right hand of the king of kings and who was willing to enter into our rubble and brokenness. And did you notice he didn't blame? He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And what did that mean? He was willing to take responsibility on himself, to take our sin, our brokenness, our foolishness, our problems, not blame shifting, not hating others, but instead taking it upon himself and then dying on the cross for our sins so that through his resurrection, we might have life. If we're gonna live out of holy ambition and holy initiative, we've gotta have one who is greater than Nehemiah because as soon as you start moving down that path, you're gonna see your sin, you're gonna see the sin of others and you need a healer, a redeemer, a savior who through this pathway in life can readjust you, can cleanse you, can comfort you, say, hey, it's okay, just simply follow me. That is Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is not the hero of the story, it's Jesus. And unless we're willing to follow Jesus and surrender to him and seek out his will, he's not gonna be able to guide us into clarity, into need, into courage and conviction. One of the ways we do that at Bergen Park is to share communion together. Each Sunday we do this. I hope it doesn't become ritualistic for you, but each week as we do this, it's an opportunity to take whatever you've heard. I don't know what's important to you. It could be in the song, it could be in the welcome, but to take whatever God is doing and simply to sit with him in it. And maybe today you need to begin the conversation, God, what is it that I want? What do you want for me? And just simply bring that to him. So if you haven't had a chance to grab the communion elements, it's totally okay. I need to grab them myself. They're available in the back. They're also available up front. And we wanna take these elements and in a time of, of prayer and reflection, simply to present our hearts before God. He is the good shepherd. He longs to lead us and to guide us. And so let's, Let's spend some time bringing those needs and requests into his presence. Let's pray. Father, so often we are weary. We are heavy laden. We want to live out of our own strength, our own might, our own power. And your invitation is just simply, would you come to me? Would you come to me with the things that are wearying your soul? Would you bring to me the things that feel heavy laden? Because I am the God who promises you that I will give you rest for your souls.
but you have to come. So Father, in Jesus' name, we cast our cares on you because you tell us you care for us. Show us, show us, Father, what we need and may we, in response, just start as your children, as little kids do, just start telling you all the stuff that's on our mind, our heart, our desires, our affections, that we would treat you like our Father, our Abba, not ashamed, but instead in honesty as a little child coming to you, presenting our request to God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it and gave thanks. He said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. same way after supper he took a cup so this cup it represents the new covenant the relationship with the father established through Jesus blood let us receive it together